So as an additional resource as part of our theories in One Peter, we're just talking to Sam Miller today. Sam works for a charity called Open Doors that work with persecuted Christians all around the world. And One Peter is um, a well-known um, cherished letter within the persecuted church. It's something that has often been looked to to bolster and support and strengthen faith. And so we're just gonna talk to Sam a little bit about that today and how One Peter has that sort of impact on the church around the world in environments that are difficult and costly to follow Jesus in. Uh, Sam's actually my brother, so uh, there's a lot of Miller in the room today. So anyway, um, Sam, thanks for helping us today. Um, I guess it'd be useful to start, for those who have no concept of the persecuted church, um, or perhaps unfamiliar with the notion of sort of faith-based discrimination, um, it would be really helpful if you could just give us a sense of, of that as a reality today its breadth and maybe some examples of that i, I think i read that um there's maybe th around 360 million christians who are persecuted maybe one in seven or something like that christians in the world and so yeah if you could just help us understand that a little bit absolutely um i mean i suppose the context of persecution is is not it is it is a contemporary reality but it's also a historical reality and it's a biblical reality um, both in the Old Testament, you've got stories of you know, the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah being exiled to Babylon and various stories of persecution. In the New Testament, Jesus arrives on the scene and you know, very quickly begins to talk to his disciples about uh, both the glories of knowing him and following him, but also the suffering that is linked with the glory of, of that and the, the pearl of great price, the treasure in the field, but also that how do you count the cost daily in order to live within this kind of new covenant of relationship with, with God? And, uh, and Jesus speaks to his disciples and says, in the same way that I have been persecuted, that you'll be persecuted because of your faith in me, because you are not of this world, but you are of a new kingdom. And then that kingdom is in a conflict with the, the, the kingdom of the world. And we see very, very quickly after, you know, Jesus is, uh, dies, is resurrected and is ascended. And the believers are gathered in the place, the Holy Spirit pours on them, and then they get scattered out to the, to the nations. But in that scattering and that sending in the power of the Spirit, the glory of the Spirit on them, they very quickly encounter some of that opposition, some of that conflict. And we have the story of uh, Peter and John being brought for the religious leaders and then told not to speak of Jesus. They say, how can we not speak of Jesus? Then they're brought in again and they're given a beating. And then you've got the story in Acts 7 of Stephen who loses his life because of his faith in Jesus. And then that story carries on through Paul, who was a persecutor, becoming somebody who gets transformed and becomes one who is then persecuted for the faith that he used to persecute. And then so many of the letters in the New Testament are written either by Peter, by Paul, by John, in contexts where they're facing persecution, or to Christians who are facing persecution. So it's this whole narrative. And, you know, we can often read the New Testament and not even notice that. But for me, being exposed to... Uh, the global context of the church in, in recent years um, and realizing that, you know, 365 million Christians around the, around the world live in contexts facing fairly high levels of persecution for their faith. Similar persecution to what the New Testament church experienced. Sometimes it's beating, sometimes it's a restriction from freedom, some it's losing their lives, some it's losing their, you know, um, economic advantage. Those same realities happen around the world and faced by many, many Christians. And the suffering is both extreme and painful. And yet in the midst of that suffering, there's also the glory of God is revealed in that. It's this dynamic of, you know, the kingdom breaking in, the kingdom being resisted, but the kingdom still continuing its 
it's humbling, heartbreaking, but also hugely inspiring. Okay, so in the New Testament, it's it's actually sort of part of almost part of normal Christian life. The expectation of that, and and for many people in the world, that's that is the case. It's part of normal Christian life to experience some sort of pushback as a result. Yeah, and Peter, you're looking. I mean, Peter's very clear in in one Peter four. It says, "Do not be surprised mm-hmm. when you face yeah. you know trials of all kinds." And I think one of the biggest challenges, you know, for us, particularly in the West, is we're, we're surprised when life does not go swimmingly, <laughs> and we're questioning God. Well, who is God when I experience suffering? But the narrative of, of the New Testament, and Peter draws this out very, very clearly, is that actually our circumstantial experience is not the primary identity of who we are, yeah. but we have become translated to a new identity that we are children of God. We stand to inherit an eternity of intimacy with God, and therefore, how do we live differently? And I think. Again, for me, learning from Christians around the world, living in context of persecution, you realize that the narrative they're living within, within that narrative, suffering does not represent the absence of God, but it represents the opportunity of the presence of God. And that's so much more in keeping with the New Testament picture that actually in suffering, God is incredibly present, beautifully present. And, you know, many people I chat to around the world, you know, reflect on that there is a glory of God that is present in suffering. And, you know, I know that in my own life, moments of suffering where my heart has been humbled rather than hardened, is that there is always grace that transforms that moment and you realise that there is something to be encountered of God in the midst of that. Yeah, that's amazing. And I th- I've been to a number of the the events that Open Doors will run where those sort of stories are told and there's very little that I find uh, um, equal to it in terms of sobering and encouraging and challenging and you do come away with, you, you feel like, wow, I've I've heard and I've tasted something of of real deep christian faith um which is beautiful so um how is what do open doors do how do they go about seeking to to help or support or be sort of help yeah in with the persecution i mean the the origin of kind of open doors is is really through a, a man um, brother andrew who came to faith um he's from the netherlands came to faith in his um late 20s and was praying and seeking God, how should he now live because of the fact he is, has a new identity in Christ? And he felt God speak to him through Revelation 3, 2, and this verse, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. And he felt God really laying on his heart about strengthening the church that is at risk of, of dying, whether the church is suffering, is, is oppressed, is persecuted. And really that took him into initially to Poland and then into Eastern Europe when um uh, Eastern Europe was very much under the control of, of communism and then increasingly into other parts of the world um, standing with the supporting Christians. But but really that bit, strengthen what remains, is really the key bit. So w- why we exist is to stand with and to strengthen Christians in their faith around the world. But actually what we find is that we are probably more strengthened <laughs> in our faith, that we can stand and strengthen in, in practical means, call the global church to pray, uh, to practically support, to advocate, all of that stuff. But actually, you know, there's this mutual strengthening of faith because we encounter Jesus through one another and it reinforces our vision of reality and the way that we live in relation to that. So the way that we support can be anything from, um, you know, supporting uh, Christians in North Korea in, uh, who are suffering um, in, with humanitarian care and aid, um, supporting pastors who have lost their livelihood because of their um, leadership in church, uh, in Nigeria, running a trauma care centre for those who've been abducted because of their faith, and for many, particularly women, have suffered sexual violence, and this trauma centre is about restoring them. 
other countries. It's smuggling Bibles um, and it's providing discipleship resources. So just really whatever we can do to strengthen people in remaining faithful to Christ, growing in that faith and being his witnesses in the context that they uh, are living in a field called to. That's amazing. Um, so, so as I said, we're in this series in 1 Peter, and uh, we've been focusing on how, Jesus, uh, how Peter writes um, to this group of churches in Asia Minor in order to, I think the language in chapter 5 is to, to help them stand firm in their faith. And, um, and he does that by engaging, we've talked about, their perspective and their practice, like how they think and then what they do. And, um, and so we've looked at how he, he talks to them about um, their hope, chapter 1, and the purpose they have and their identity and then um, and then living distinctive lives, so like staying holy, like be holy, stay humble, be humble, and um, and so he writes them about these things in order to strengthen. So we've used the language of um, when the going gets tough as the sort of um, heading for the series. When the going gets tough, like how do we? What are the things that are going to strengthen us? And um, I know that you've just finished a master's dissertation, um, which is great, and he's on this very topic, this very um, book of 1 Peter and the way the persecuted church read 1 Peter and how it strengthens them. So um, it'd be really fascinating to hear a little bit about that. I wonder whether you could just start by um, just some of the things that the way that 1 Peter goes, or the way Peter in his letter goes about strengthening or seeking to strengthen the church. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's so many verses in, in 1 Peter. I read it every day for about 40 days as a way of just trying to, you know, ingest it and ask the Lord just to open my eyes. And each day there's different things kind of stood out. So it's really hard in a short snapshot of a conversation to to draw attention to key things. Um, one of the things I think is really key is in, in chapter 2, verse 10, and Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And, and he's writing to a community that dispersed, as you said, in, in northern Turkey. But also, Paul writes the, uh, Peter writes them uh, with a, a almost a, a different kind of definition at the start of his verses to those chosen, living as exiles. And I think that word of kind of chosen, living as exiles, living as strangers, and um, is a is a definition and an articulation of identity that he's trying to give this um, dispersed people group a sense of who they are because of whose they are. Well. That again, perspective and practice, understanding who God is, therefore understanding who they are, and then understanding how they live in the world. That kind of, you know, triad is really, really key. And again, for our lives, actually, what we understand about God affects what we understand about ourselves, affects the way that we live. So Peter is kind of looking in some ways at the way that they are living and saying, okay, there's a problem here with the way that you understand yourselves. And there's a problem with that because of the way that you understand God. So he's going from their lived experience to reintroduce them to their sense of their own identity via helping them to understand their identity in God. So it's this sense of who am I in the world? How do I make sense of that? And you are not a people, but you are now a people. That sense of reassurance of though you feel displaced, though you feel oppressed, though you are suffering, actually you have an identity that's secure. You are chosen by God. Mm. Though you are exiles and strangers, actually you are not really. You know, you have an identity that is eternally secure. Therefore, understand that and live out of that in the context of your community. So that appeal to help them understand who they are, I think, is really key. And yeah. again, for many Christians around the world, one of the biggest challenges for them is that their identity is kind of eviscerated within their context. One of the challenges in Nigeria and one of the 
attempts of um, some of the Islamic extremism against the church is to really eviscerate the sense of identity that Christians have. Some of that is by abducting women and girls, forcing them into marriage and um, sexual violence is this whole way of just undermining a sense of identity and who you are and, and producing brokenness in people. So one of the key things in Nigeria for us and the application of a letter like 1 Peter is to say all of this suffering is horrendous. There is no justification of it. There's nothing to make that easier. But in the midst of that, you know, God is still faithful. God is still kind and helping people not to define themselves as victims of their circumstance or by that which they've experienced, but to recalibrate their sense of who they are through reflection on who God is and what God says about them. And I think when you see scripture at work in people's lives, kind of renewing and transforming identity, it's so, so powerful. And I think that's what Peter is doing here and doing effectively, which still relates to the world today. It's, it's, it's both uh, poignant and beautiful all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. And, um, uh, yeah, I love that what you said there, but, um, when you see, scripture having an impact in in the in people's lives and you um you, you use um you, you interview four people as part of your as part of the dissertation asking them to read and reflect on their own interpretation of one peter and these are people who are um it, from four different contexts of quite significant persecution either currently in it or have it have been in it and um and i think it's a fascinating part of your dissertation because um yeah, engaging with the interpretation of people who are undergoing um, not totally dissimilar um, circumstances to where the, the, those that one Peter was first written to, and then sort of finding out what what are they what are they drawing from it, and what's um, encouraging and strengthening them, and how is that how, how is it functioning in that way for them? Um, and so it'd be interesting. I don't know whether you could mention just a couple of the a couple of the stories of the people you interviewed and sort of how. Maybe I know there's a lot of ways that it was encouraging for them, but maybe a couple of the primary things that they found to be encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that came through from all four of the people that I interviewed, and again, four may not sound like many, but it was, a, it was enough of a demand on me from a dissertation because you have to do all the kind of ethical process and stuff. But there's so much more there to, I think, be uncovered. But one of the things that really stood out is almost a redemptive perspective on on suffering that suffering again doesn't represent the absence of god but the the opportunity of his presence and and that redeems and transforms situations um one of the stories um much who's actually spoken at, at um, trent before one of the things that really struck me from his story is when he was in prison as a in a 21 22 year old and he was in isolation for 30 days uh, faced interrogation you know all of those kind of situations and you know just some horrific parts of that um story but one day he was in isolation and felt the isolation felt the overwhelming oppression of that whole situation and he cried out you know my god why have you forsaken me and as he said those words he suddenly realized and remembered that those were the words that jesus had said on the cross mm. and jesus had gone through that because of his love for Majtaba. And yet Jesus's suffering also led to his resurrection and, and glory. And he, in that moment, captured that reality that suffering does not represent the absence of God, but there's purpose in God that is redemptive in the midst of, of that situation. And so that really strengthened him to know that 
um, just as Jesus had suffered, he was in the same way suffering, and it really kind of strengthened him. And again, in one Peter, Peter in chapter one, verse eleven talks about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And there's this kind of again union between suffering and glory. And Peter again writes it at the end of his letter, and he talks about as a witness of the sufferings of Christ and living in hope of the glories yet to come. And you realize that for Peter, for him, he's got living memory, lived experience of Jesus, the suffering servant who gave up the glories of heaven to come to earth, suffered just inhumanely on the earth, but then resurrected to glory. This kind of journey, this arc of suffering and glory, you know, wasn't abstract. It was kind of realized. And because he knew that Jesus had suffered, but was going to glory. I think it gave Peter that confidence that even though he was suffering and knew he would suffer, and even though those he's writing to are suffering, he knows that there's glory that's the other side of that. And I think, you know, most of the story particularly is that sense of in the midst of suffering, this doesn't represent the absence of God, but actually um, there's glory the other side of this. You know, there's inheritance of God's presence the other side of that. So I think that's a really powerful kind of image that, you know, comes out time and time again in one Peter particularly. Mm. And also came out for all of those that I um, interviewed, that sense that their suffering is a participation with Christ and yet that Christ is also with them in their suffering. And it totally renews and transforms their perspective of the environment. And for me, that came through really clearly for me in Nigeria a number of years ago and uh, being with this local church and meeting various members of the congregation who showed me wounds in their body from persecution or talked about you know, the wounds of lost family members. And talking to the pastor after saying, how do you live when you've experienced this is your expectation? And he could see my discomfort and he put his hand on my shoulder and said, Sam, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, which was Paul's uh, <laughs> word to the church in Philippi. And and what I realized in that moment that, that he was living and they as a community are living with a hope, even though there is a suffering, that perspective, that hope of the glory that they know is the other side of this momentary suffering is so, so powerful. And I think what the the church around the world facing persecution offer to us is a kind of a revision of our reality to understand that as um, Peter writes here, that we are aliens and strangers on the earth. This is just such a microcosm of the eternal inheritance that we have. And sometimes when we see suffering in its kind of, you know, minutiae moment rather than big thing, we have ability to cope with that. You know, if you go into the dentist and you know you're gonna have a needle put in your gum, but you know it's gonna be 30 seconds of pain, they're gonna take away a tooth, it's gonna be better. Mm. You have tolerance for that because you understand the bigger picture. Mm. And I think Peter's trying to give the community their tolerance for their immediate circumstances mm. because of a, of a greater perspective. That doesn't diminish the feelings, uh, the cost of that suffering but it redeems it in some way to understand that there is something more significant going on here. It's amazing. And so, and I guess in chapter one, that's where he, he talks about this living hope and, and this inheritance that he's kept in heaven, imperishable. And, and yeah, and so it's right at the sort of header of the letter, he's putting that, this future hope that is ahead of Exactly. Them. I mean, he's, he's framing their whole kind of material experience with an eternal dimension which causes them to think differently, you know? And I think the challenge is for me, for you, for us, how do we process our immediate experience, whether good or bad, mm. painful or, or, or positive? How do we frame that with an internal perspective? If things are going really, really well, 
Yeah. Well, what do we do with that going very well? You know, Scripture talks about for those of you who are currently experiencing kind of material blessing, use that for the blessing of others. For those of you who are currently experiencing, you know, suffering, may others join with you in that. There's this sense of kind of partnership for it. So, mate, I think Eugene Peterson talks about hope and he says um, hope is about the future, but it is for the present. And and that's exactly what you see. It's about this future, but it's actually the thing that it's impacting is their present capacity to endure and stay faithful to Jesus. It's amazing. Um, you say, I'm just going to read the quotes. You say at the beginning of the dissertation, you write, um, the living example of faith forged and formed in the fires of persecution has both humbled my faith and elevated it. And I just wondered whether you could sort of speak to that, the, to the impact of your relationship to the persecuted church on your own faith. Um, and then I suppose second to that, um, more broadly, what it offers the faith of churches in the in the West and in situations where we're not facing that sort of persecution. Hearing you read that back, it sounds a bit soundbitey. Yeah. <laughs> but at the time, it felt like a good thing to write in my dissertation. Um, yeah, I think for me that there is this kind of reframing of reality that the context of others offers to us, both the context of, you know, um, us living in the UK as we participate in one another's lives and each other's both joys and sufferings. You know, in, in every encounter in life, Jesus is present. His grace is there is to redeem it. And as we walk openly and vulnerably of others, we encounter Jesus through each other's stories. I think if you kind of take that out to its kind of macro scale, to the global context, or you've taken it out to its meta scale in terms of all of history, you reflect on other people's journeys and you see both the revelation of Jesus and the grace of Jesus in those situations that cause you to think and, and, and live differently. So for me, my exposure in this season of life to Christians around the world living in contexts of persecution, it definitely radically affects the way that I perceive life and I experience life because I begin to see it through the lens and the filter of others. I mean, even this week, I was just a really, really silly illustration, but had a, had a really long week, really long day on a Wednesday, um, starting at seven, was driving home back to Birmingham at seven in the evening and worked all day to go and lead a prayer meeting at this church to pray for persecute church. And I just said, Lord, I'm absolutely shattered, you know, help me to value and appreciate this opportunity and um, that for many people around the world, they can never meet like this. Give me that strength. And, and it was a beautiful time of prayer and um, really encouraging. I said at the start of that prayer meeting to those there is this uh, prayer meeting. I think it was the most that had turned out at prayer meeting. There was about 24, uh, which was about 10% of the church, you know, which is, which is great. Um, and I said, actually, you know, countries I've been to in Southeast Asia, um, the the government allowance for a church meeting is 20 people. So would four of you mind leaving? <laughs> Jokingly said, obviously, and, and then we carried on. But again, just that kind of refresher of the things that we so easily take for granted and looks differently for the lens of other parts of the church. Again, uh, when I was in um, the Middle East a few years ago and, and you know, we took our Bibles with us and I was chatting with a guy, Samir, who was driving um, a minibus and, uh, you know, he spoke, you know, little bits of English. I spoke nothing of his natural uh, language, um, but we began talking about the Bible and, you know, he had memorized large chunks of the Bible because the Bible was sparse. In fact, he'd memorized all of Psalms, 150 Psalms. So I tested him a little bit just to check you know, and he like just waxed lyrical with the Psalms. <laughs> And um, and he just talked to me about his value of the Word of God, and, and he had personally handed over 250,000 Bibles 
put them in people's hands of those who didn't have access to the Bibles. And he told me some of the stories and he began to well up as he told the stories of being able to pass the word of God into somebody else's hands. Such was the, uh, the sense of the value of that act. And again, in, in encounters like that, you realize how valuable some things are that we don't esteem the value of at all. Um, and so I think for me, context of meeting with persecuted Christians, it, it's a challenge to value the things that we easily lose. You know, in the, right, uh, the writer of Hebrews writes about in chapter 10, do not give up the habit of meeting together because there's grace when you meet together. And when you meet Christians around the world, uh, I met a lady from, um, again, it's, um, a, a country in the Arabian Peninsula, and she had never physically been with another Christian because of her environment and restrictions. 15 years of becoming a Christian, never been physically with, with another Christian. And you suddenly realize when we have the privilege of coming together at church, it looks differently when you see it through the lens of those who don't have that. And it causes you to value some of the things that are really worthwhile that we kind of ill esteem. So things like the value of scripture, the value of meeting together, the value of prayer, um, all of those things um, just come through at a different level, really. So that, in that way, you know, my faith has been humbled, um, but also kind of elevated. That's amazing. I think I remember you telling a story about, um, well, there's maybe numerous ones about people needing to hide Bibles away and special. Can you can you recall any? I can't quite remember what it was, but yeah, I mean, cer certain countries, I mean, North Korea being um, you know prominent on on that list, it's illegal to possess a Bible. Um, and if you're found to have a Bible, you, your family, your grandparents, your children, it will all be taken to prison camps. That's not an old story. That's that's a current story. Even in this last year, that has happened. And um, yet, people still do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's seen as so it's so valuable. Yeah, the value of it. Yeah, and and again, this is where the because the Bible is scarce in some countries, the the committing to memory, um, what is in the Bible, to then be able to give that Bible to other people, and then many stories I've heard from people who have been in prison, you know, much to for instance, when he was in prison, you know, there was many verses that he'd memorized that when he was in isolation, you know, without anybody for 30 days, he would recall scriptures that he'd read as a way of reinforcing his faith and, mm -hmm. and bringing encouragement to him. So again, it's just that challenge of, you know, what's worthwhile to us and what do we value? Wow. And you can imagine that in that situation with a Bible that you have to hide all the time or commit to memory. Um, you can imagine reading 1 Peter would be just like drinking water. There's a, a just a, a beautiful story again in, in Southeast Asia, a communist nation of a, of a Christian who had been sent to prison and he was in pretty dire conditions there. And he was like, God, you know, if you're real, how can this be happening to me? Where are you in the midst of all of this? And it's like, God, you know, you've got to the end of this week, you know, otherwise I'm just going to assume that you're not real enough and I've believed the wrong thing. And one of his roles was uh, he was treated as, as scum really because of his Christian faith as what well. he had been in prison for that faith, but then the lowest low there. His role was to clean out the um, the toilet buckets. He didn't flush stuff down a loo, you, you know, do whatever you need to do with paper, you know, as sure you can imagine, <laughs> and then pop it in a bin next to it. And his role was to, to empty those bins and and uh, just the next day after he'd prayed this prayer, he was emptying um, this bin and he realized that the paper wasn't toilet paper, but it was pages of a book and he unpacked it and he read the words from Romans chapter eight, which is nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
not persecution, you know, nothing. And he read that and suddenly, it's like the glory of God broke into that moment of suffering and he realized God is real. This environment does not represent the absence of God. It represents the opportunity. There's a different grace here. And, uh, but just powerful, isn't it? I mean, that in that moment, that Romans 8, that specific bit, you know, related exactly to his scenario and was just like this, you know, God is bigger than this. And I think, again, hearing from Christians around the world, those who have encountered Jesus in dreams in countries where it's illegal to follow Jesus and there's no access to those that have experienced God in prison cells after facing torture, you realize that, you know, God is above and beyond it all. Quite why all these things happen, um, you know, it's not always fathomable, but we also understand, and as Peter wrote again, because he'd witnessed the suffering of Christ, he knew that suffering didn't represent the absence of God, but that there's a redemptive purpose in suffering. And I think when we realize that we don't harden our hearts when we suffer, but we soften our hearts to God, there is grace available. It doesn't make suffering okay, particularly where there's injustice, but there is grace that can redeem that still. And I think that's um, that's beautiful and powerful and, and mm. just, yeah. So um, <clears throat> what's the best way, if people want to find out a little bit more about Open Doors, what Open Doors do, and um, or like want to s support and pray, like what's the best way to sort of to do that? That's very kind. Um, I mean, for me, the primary thing is Jesus prays in John 17 that we would be one and so that the world would would see God through us, but and also that through our oneness there's something of the glory of God would rest upon us. So... And so much of the New Testament is kind of written to strengthen the church you know, in relationship with one another in its presence in the world. So I, so I think there's clear, you know, biblical imperative to the importance of standing with one another, standing in the gap, you know, where there is suffering and people are facing persecution. And and, and the reason that's important, and, and again, as, as Paul writes in, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, it's the sense of we encounter God, you know, through one another's witness. There's some of us that in our seasons of um, plenty get the chance to partner with those in suffering but we also encounter those jesus through those who are suffering you know um, in uh, 1 corinthians 12 26 um, paul writes um uh, you know about we rejoice for those when they're rejoicing we suffer with those when they're suffering so there's something about this piece so for me i think again my experience is by sharing life with those who are facing some of these extremities it refines your reality in a way that is so important to us living in a Christ-centered, gospel-centered, gospel-faithful way in the world that we're in. So we need, I think, those stories, mm -hmm. as well as those who are facing persecution really need us to stand in the gap, to give, to act, to pray on their behalf. So my commendation would be connect with the most persecuted if we as an organization can resource that connection. And it's our privilege to do that. We provide prayer resources and um, stories and opportunities to, to give and support those so um, yeah please go to the website to find out more how to do that um, or I can give you information that you can keep at church for those who are interested yeah and Open Doors keep every year there's the World Watch list is that right yeah. and that lists do you want to say what that does yeah so the World Watch list we uh, each year we're kind of researching and um, the reality on the ground for Christians around the world, that is both by um, individuals, um, churches in those countries, as well as specialists in the field of research, internal and external to the country. It's got a lot of credibility and we launched that in Parliament um, each year. We launched it uh, at the start of January. Uh, it was brilliant, we had about 100 MPs in the room and kind of lords and peers 
and um, we had um, Suleiman from um, Sub-Saharan Africa speaking and he shared a bit about the story and then he said to the MPs gathered and he said, you know, we want something from you but we don't want your cash. We want something far more costly. We want your moral courage. <laughs> and just wow. the, the weight of that in the room with all of these political big hitters and this room of power and saying, you know, also in the UK political system where moral courage has potentially been lacking in recent years, that almost prophetic agitation to moral courage, I think, was was really, really profound. And, yeah. Wow. Oh, thanks so much, Sam. It's like, it's quite moving, even as you're, like, speaking, just, um, yeah, I think a lot of those stories are just very moving and, um, and it's really helpful as we've sort of been going through 1 Peter just to... Um, hear some of the impact it 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 has in situations that are similar or akin to the circumstances it was written into and i think my encouragement would be and, and again both from personal experience you know reading one peter every day for 40 days i think it would really encourage you those listening just to read through one peter each day for 30 days and just write in the journal the things that stand out to you there's so much there that um, is so enriching and helpful for us translating the moment we're in within a, a wider context and you know at the end of uh, 1 Peter um, chapter uh, 4 um, oh, from it, sorry it says verse uh, sorry chapter 5 um, verse 9 it says resist him speaking of, of the enemy resist him firm in the faith knowing that the same kind of suffering has been experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world and I and I think again there's a this sense of faithfulness to Christ looks like persistence in the things that Jesus evidenced and called us to but it also is is in our resistance to the things that would cause us to compromise yeah. and I think when you meet Christians around the world who are because they're because they are not compromising in this setting I think that's what Peter you know is pointed to there is when you see those who are not compromising and being faithful let it also encourage you to not compromise and to be faithful yeah that's brilliant thanks so much sir. that's great so I hope that's been encouraging and helpful for you if you'd like to find out anything more about Open Doors or the rest of the series that we've been doing in 1 Peter and additional resources then just head to trentv.org forward slash 1 Peter